0: All right. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we would love for you to open it now to Acts chapter fifteen, Acts fifteen verse one. That's on page nine hundred and twenty-three. And the pew Bibles—I guess I guess they're chair Bibles now, um, but whatever they are, they're right there in front of you. You can bend over and grab one of those. Page nine hundred and twenty-three. This morning we're going to be reading the story of the Jerusalem Council, and uh, many theologians and scholars identify the Jerusalem Council in Acts fifteen as the theological and narrative center of the book of Acts. Uh, So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, This is the moment when everything could have come to a crashing end. This is the moment when the church could have died. Uh, This is the, the moment where Christianity could have become nothing other than a peripheral Jewish cult. Everything could have ground to a halt right here. But it didn't. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, the early church handled this first theological controversy, and they made a decision that literally changed the world. Now, it's a fairly long story. We're going to read all 35 verses of it, so strap in. Hope you brought a snack. Uh, here we go, okay? And we're going to try and answer as we read, so you can listen for these four, four questions as we read. We're gonna try and answer these four questions. Number one, what, what was the issue? Why, why was this such a big deal? What was the big fuss? What, why did we have to have a council? What was the issue? Number two, how did they address it? Number three, what did they decide? And then number four, why does this matter for us today? All right, so here now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers "'Nor we have been able to bear. "'But we believe that we will be saved "'through the grace of the Lord Jesus, "'just as they will.'" And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, "'Brothers, listen to me. "'Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles "'to take from them a people for his name.'" And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord And from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time... They were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, take a breath, stretch, uh, do what you need to do, all right? And we're going to now go through those four questions together. The first question we need to figure out here is this. What was the issue? Remember last week, Pastor Steve uh, preached on the very end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And uh, so they, they told us about how they came back to the church that had actually sent them out. They came back for a time of rest and refreshment, what we call today furlough. Uh, but they also came back to reflect on that because that was literally the first missionary journey. And anytime you do something, you stop and you reflect about it so you can do it better next time. Because there was going to be a second missionary journey, a third missionary journey, and we're going to keep this thing going, right? We're still doing this today. And so there was some reflection as well. And it began, the whole process began with a report, and Pastor Steve spoke to us about that. I'm guessing that, that would have been the most amazing missionary report of all time, right? I mean, it had, it had all the elements. It had uh, miraculous healings. Remember, Paul healed that guy who had been lame from birth, and he just healed him. And then he jumped up and started leaping and dancing and praising God. And then there would have been stories of persecution too. Uh, we we love stories of persecution uh, because it you know it, it makes us feel like in some sense we're suffering for the Lord too, right? Whether we are or not. But uh, there was there was persecution, and uh, and then stories of conversion. Just masses and and masses of people were coming to Christ uh, through that missionary journey. Both Jews and Gentiles. But therein lies the essence of the problem. Look again at Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, right? Because this report that Paul and Barnabas were given, it was the talk of the town in Antioch. Everybody was talking about it. In town and apparently even outside the town. So people came down. They did, there were people who didn't like what they were hearing. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What was what was the line from the song that I quoted at the start? Foul to foul to thy fountain fly. What's the rest? Wash me, Savior, or I die. I thought that was the gospel. I thought the gospel was that all all we bring to the waters is an awareness of our need to be clean, of of a confession that we're sinners in need of grace. I thought that's the gospel. Foul to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And now we got a group of people saying, no, no, no wait a second. Before you, before you get into the pool, before you get into the tank, you first you got to get circumcised. By the way, I mean, that's a painful way to start the day, I guess, right? <laughs> Show up at the church. You know what? We're going to back it up to 830 because we're going to go ahead and circumcise you first. And then, and then you've got to keep the law of Moses, which we've been trying to do for a couple thousand years, and no one's done it yet. So it may a little earlier. Right? That's, that's what they're saying. So everyone was hearing about this incredible stuff, but some uh, were not impressed. They thought it wasn't being done the right way. Men came down from Judea. Now, we don't know everything we'd like to know about who they were. Uh, scholars and commentators typically assume that they were converted Pharisees, uh, if you look at verse 5, when the council finally got together, it was these converted Pharisees that stood up and uh, gave the charge. So we assume that they're the folks who raised the issue in the first place. Luke says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So apparently, uh, an, a significant number of Pharisees converted to the worship of, of Jesus. Uh, which is interesting. And, and enough of them, apparently, that they could form their own party, which of course they did. <laughs> if you know anything about the Pharisees, that's no surprise to you. So we got a party of Christian Pharisees, Pharisaic Christianity in the first generation of the church. Now that's remarkable, really, isn't it? Because Jesus was very critical, openly, unabashedly critical of the Pharisees in his earthly ministry. He would say things like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's not very nice. Right? He's saying, not only are you not helpful, everyone you get to listen to you and your teaching actually becomes twice as much a son of hell as you are. You're the opposite of helpful. Helpful. You're like a Venus flytrap from hell. That's what he says. And yet, so, I mean, first of all, credit to these Pharisees for actually converting to the worship and, and, and lordship of Jesus. And yet, clearly, they came into the movement with some baggage. In general... Uh, Jesus said that the Pharisees cared too much for outer appearances, they were too worried about looking righteous as opposed to being righteous, and they put too much stock in ritual and ceremony. So Jesus would say things like, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he says, You guys are actually in the back weighing up your garden herbs, so that you can say that, you know, you're a faithful tither, which is fine, but you care nothing for the weightier considerations of mercy, justice, faithfulness, etc. You guys have no idea what this is really all about. So Pharisees cared about precise perfunctory obedience to the law of Moses. But they had a hard time understanding that the essence of real religion was actually internal. Real religion was ultimately a matter of the heart. And they brought that confusion with them into the church. That was the issue. The Pharisaic Christians were arguing that a person has to become an obedient Jew before they are saved by the grace of God in Christ. So they're literally putting the cart before the horse. Because that's the exact opposite of the order that we see in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. Remember, Jesus was critical of how the Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament, not not the New Testament, which of course hadn't been written yet. So the issue was not that the Pharisees were good Jews who just needed to kind of unlearn some stuff in order to make it in Christianity. No, no, the issue was that they were bad Jews. As Jews, they should have understood that grace always comes first. Good Jews knew that. Bible-reading Jewish people would have known that. Just flip over in your Bible. We're we're in Acts, of course, which is kind of towards the right of your Bible. Flip over towards the left. It should just take a second to Exodus chapter 20. And, of course, if you're a Bible reader, you already know what we're going to look at. Exodus 20 is uh, the Ten Commandments. I just want you to see this because it's helpful for us to understand. This is not a New Testament, Old Testament issue. This is a faithful Bible reading versus arrogant Bible reading issue. So Exodus 20, of course, is the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is what it says, the first three verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, which you'll recognize as the first commandment. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. God sets a group of people free from bondage. He sets his people free from slavery in Egypt before they have the law. Can you imagine how awful biblical religion would be if what Exodus 20 said is, I'm going to give you 10 commandments. If you can go ahead and keep them, then I'll set you free. That would be the worst religion ever. P.S., that's every religion but this one. No, instead, God says, I will save you before you deserve it. Before you've done anything, while you are weak and scattered and in bondage, while you are in bondage, I will save you. And then I'll teach you how to live. Does that resonate with what we just heard in the tank? How, how sanctified do you need to be before you get baptized? How many, like what's your score on the Ten Commandments before you get Answer, zero. All you need is is foul to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Jesus, or I die. And then you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, grace, further grace, right? You get help, you get the word, you get the body of Christ, and you begin to make progress by one degree of glory to the next. That's Christianity in a nutshell, right? And and that's completely continuous with what we're seeing even in the Old Testament. God says, hey, wait a second, I saved you first, right? Now, walk this way. So that was the order of things. It's always been the order of things. But the Pharisees were confused about that. And had they brought that confusion into Christianity, then Christianity would never have been anything other than a bizarre Jewish cult. It wouldn't even have been Orthodox Judaism. But, of course, they they weren't successful. The early church addressed this challenge head on. So let's look at how they, how they did that. How did they address it? First thing they did was pretty obvious. They called a council... So verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. By the way, isn't it interesting? I hope your brain snags on interesting things when you read the Bible. Isn't it interesting that in, in both mentions there of the council, it says that the apostles and the elders were going to be involved in the deliberations. Isn't that interesting? That's counterintuitive. I mean, you you might wonder, like, if we are going to have the apostles there at this council, what do we need the elders for? They're not even named. It was like Joe and Frank are going to be there too. Who cares? Right? I mean, the apostle John is going to be there. Um, The apostle Peter is going to be there. The apostle Thomas is going to be there. James, the brother of Jesus, is going to be there. Who cares if Joe and Frank are going to be there? What do we need them for? Well, of course, the reality is the apostles were only going to be in the church for the first generation. But theological crisis was something we're told to expect generation after generation after generation. And so the elders need to know how to do this. So what we're looking at here is a passing of the baton. So they call a council. And it's a a council. Let's notice that too, right? The church is not to be led by a single dominant human personality. It is to be led by a plurality of elders, They didn't just ask Peter for a verdict on this. They called a council. That's wisdom. Proverbs says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Can I tell you something? A church that is dominated by a single voice is in trouble. So the early church called a council. Second thing they did was they heard testimony and examined evidence. In verse 4, Paul and Barnabas are, are given a report, and then they're given a report again later, so there's lots of reporting from them. They basically just repeat uh, to the council everything that they've now been saying in Judea, but then also over in Antioch. Then in verse 7, Peter, he gets up, and he says, you know, this is really no different than what happened to me uh, when I went to see Cornelius, right? That story's back in, in Acts chapter 10, which we read this morning in the RMM Bible reading plan, so maybe you already saw that. Peter says, you know, it's exactly the same. Th- those folks were a bunch of Gentiles. None of them had been circumcised. None of them were eating kosher. There's like a whole, you know, bacon platter off to the side right there. And, and that, none of that seemed to matter because according to verses 8 and 9, as Peter's telling the story, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Huh. Well, that's, I mean, that's a fair point, right? If God has vindicated these, the, the faith of these folks by giving them the Holy Spirit, which is the climactic gift of the gospel, if that has happened, if, if hot dog-eaten, uncircumcised Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit simply on the basis of having heard the gospel and believed, then who are we to question the reality of their experience? And all the assembly fell silent. Because that's a pretty powerful argument, right? I mean, how do you argue with that? Peter says, I, you know, I can't think of a way to argue with that. I couldn't then either. Once I saw the Holy Spirit falling on that group, you know, he said, can anyone withhold water? This is from Acts 10. Can anyone hold, withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter was already there. He'd already been convinced that God was saving Gentiles, irrespective of their circumcision status, irrespective of their law-keeping. It was not a factor. He was convinced by the undeniable fact that they received the Holy Spirit. So case closed, as far as Peter can see. That's powerful testimony. That's incontrovertible evidence. But the council didn't stop there. They went on to study the Scriptures. They wanted to make sure that their experience aligned with the teaching of the Bible. That's the third thing. They consulted the Scriptures. Boy, there's wisdom in that, isn't there? Because, of course, it is possible to misread our experiences. It is is possible even to be deceived by our experiences. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And so they wanted to make sure that these events and these experiences uh, squared with what the Bible said. So James, the brother of the Lord, he stands up, and he begins to tell the congregation how everything we've just heard, all this testimony, all this evidence that we've just heard, it actually all squares with what the prophets said. And so he begins to refer to Amos 9. So look at verses 14 to 18 there, Acts 15, 14 to 18. Simeon, that's, that's another uh, way of referring to Peter, right? Peter was more of a nickname. So Simeon has revealed how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And listen to this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, now he's quoting from Amos 9, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. All right, James says, so this all lines up, right? I mean, Jesus is, is the Messiah. God said that at some point he would raise up the fallen house of David. Okay, well, Jesus is the son of David, so that fits. And then he said that as part of this renovation, we're going to bring in all these Gentiles. Well, now we got all these Gentiles coming in, so everything that we're hearing about, everything that we're seeing, everything that we're celebrating today is actually entirely congruent with the teaching of Holy Scripture. Case closed. All right, because what argument is there against that? God said it would happen. It is happening. So even if it's not happening exactly the way that we all anticipated that it would happen, nevertheless, who among us has any reason to speak a single word against what the Lord is doing? That was the end of the argument. Then in verses 19 and following, James summarizes where the council has landed. So let's take a look at that. This is what they decided here. James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. And it wasn't just James that came to this conclusion. It was everybody. Verse 22 says that this is the position of the elders and the apostles as well, and they appointed delegates to communicate this to the churches. So Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. They don't have to embrace the Old Testament law in order to become Christians. We're not going to put that burden on them. Everyone's going to get saved the same way by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. However, he says, quite apart from the issue of how folks get saved, let's do what we can, James says, to live agreeably, wisely, and peaceably and respectfully with one another. Gentile converts need to live lives of singular worship, sexual purity, and social consideration. So practically speaking, he's saying, hey, listen, you you can't worship Jesus on the Lord's Day and then go to some, you know, pagan Roman festival on some other day in the week. And you can't worship Jesus and sleep with prostitutes or sleep with your slaves as as most Roman men were used to doing. And if you want to be a part of the church, then you need to be considerate around customs and food. That's the bit there about strangled meat and blood. Jewish people are offended by those things, and so given how much of church life happens around the table, right? I mean, it's, I think it's a sin to get together without some kind of casserole, right? So obviously we need to be careful about what we put in the casserole. If we're all going to be eating together, sharing table fellowship, there needs to be consideration. Singular worship, sexual purity, social consideration. That's not how you get saved, but that's how you need to live in the church as saved people. That was the decision. All right, the last question then is this. How in the world does this matter for us today, right? Why does this matter? As I mentioned, many scholars say that this is the theological and narrative center of the book of Acts. It's positioned that way by Luke. So clearly he thinks this is super important. And I think it is as well. Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, it's important because it preserved the gospel from its first external threat. Number two, it provided a model for how to handle theological controversy moving forward. And then number three, it properly prioritized selflessness, selflessness and consideration in the life of the church. So let me give you a word or two about each of those. First of all, Luke's main concern is to show how the church responded to the first theological crisis, the first threat to the gospel. Now later in Acts 20, we're going to see the Apostle Paul telling the elders of that church in Ephesus that it's their job to protect the church from future Theological threats. There are going to be all kinds of threats. Every generation is going to have threats to the gospel. And he tells the elders, You need to be on, on guard against that. So he says in Acts 20, 29 to 31, I know that after my departure, so he's saying, This is not a first generation problem. This is an every generation problem. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. These challenges are going to rise from inside the church, like the first one did. These were not outside Pharisees, these were inside Pharisees. These were believers. He says, that's where the challenge is going to come from. So these, these fierce wolves are going to come in from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Luke wants us to understand that the gospel is going to be under threat in every generation. And it's the job of the church, the job of the elders of the church in particular, to guard against that. That is their job. Their job is to hand off the gospel unchanged and untwisted to the next generation of believers. Luke wants us to see that, and we need to see that. This story also matters, this is the second thing, because it provides a model for how to deal with theological controversy. I love what David Peterson says here in his commentary. He says, in this historical framework, Luke presented conflict and debate as legitimate and necessary elements in the process of discerning God's will. He showed how such disagreement serves to reveal the true basis for fellowship and elicit the fundamental principles of community identity. I love that. You gotta have debate. You gotta have dialogue. It's gotta happen in a certain way, but it has to happen for the church to be able to process new threats. It's so important for us to understand At the risk of sounding negative, it was the absence of this that really bothered me in the final days of our journey with the CBOQ. For those of you who are new, you have no idea what I was talking about, but we we used to be part of another theological association, churches that partner together for a variety of purposes. And um, our association was really threatened by the whole LGBTQ question, which came up quick in our culture. It really did. It came on fast. And... The leadership in our group immediately recognized that this was a threat to unity. We're going to have churches landing differently on this. We got different opinions on this, depending on how they read the Bible. Depending, You could have people all over the map. And so as some churches said, hey, we need to talk about this. Like, we need to figure this out. That conversation was actually stifled from the top. They didn't want us talking about this because they realized we would discover how little agreement we have. And it would, it would create unity and fracture. We'd lose churches over it. So as a result, it was kind of like a sh- 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 sh. Don't, don't bring it up, don't talk about it. Well, how's that a solution? Right? How's that, how's that helping churches resource parents for this stuff? Because you can sh- 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 all you like, it's coming into your family, it's coming through the school system, it's coming through the media. you know, almost every week I have a... Well, I'll back that up and say maybe every other week. Certainly more than once a month I have a conversation with maybe a grandparent in this church who's saying, you know, I've I've been told that if I don't go along with the whole new pronouns or the new whatevers, that I'm not going to get to see my grandkids. How do I respond to that? We, We have to talk about this stuff. You know, we... We have, to, we have to understand, this is new stuff. You know, I, I spent all, I, I just finished last night I, um, a book called The Genesis of Gender, written by Abigail uh, Favelli. One of the best books I've read this year. And just trying to help people understand, like, so what is Gender. What is sex? are sex and gender the same thing? Is, is gender a community construct like we just it 's like a performance we, we sort of act like women or act like or is it connected to our biology? All of that is open seat, is an open question in our culture right now and and we need to know what the Bible says so that we can give good, good counsel because Out in the culture, our kids are being told that they are self-creators, that their body is a canvas. And so they can actually do harmful surgeries and harmful treatments to change their bodies to perform whatever gender play they want to play. And nobody is talking openly about the incredible medical costs associated with this, the, the physical, biological, medical costs associated with this. And nobody's talking about the psychological cost. We're always told, like, if you don't get on board with this, understand that kids are going to commit suicide. Do you know that there's no evidence for that? And, in fact, all the evidence we do have indicates a significantly heightened risk for suicidal ideation for those who've undergone transition. Not to mention the incredible biological cost. Oh, church, we need to talk about this. Because I guarantee you, Grandma was not talking about this. You understand that, right? It's a new challenge. Grandma was not sitting around going, is gender a cultural performance? Or is it connected to my ovaries and womb? Like, she was not not thinking about that. But we need to think about that. And I understand if we talk about that in the church, we're going to have some disagreement. Can I tell you something? I'm so okay with that. We see through a glass darkly. We fumble our way. And this is new stuff. So we need to get together. You know, one of the things we've been talking about is maybe we need to start having like irregular Sunday nights where we invite members. It's kind of closed to the outside because we're, it's not. This is not a finished statement, right? We don't want Aurelia Matters publishing what we talk about in there because we got to think our way through this stuff. We've got to stumble our way through this stuff. We have to help each other. We have to share experiences. We have to allow testimonies. But then, of course, just like they do in this council. We've got to land on scripture. We have to do that, otherwise, we're not going to be shining the light anymore. In this culture, we're not going to be able to address the questions that have arisen in the hearts of our friends and loved ones. So we got to do this. And then lastly, I'm so thankful for the example of the Acts fifteen council. It just reminds us we we've got to do this. Then then lastly, this story matters for us today because it reminds us of the importance of selflessness and consideration in the life of the church. And we need to remember that because we live in a culture that is characterized, that is dominated by something called expressive individualism. Individualism is the idea that the self is now the center of reference. The self is the center of your worldview. And so your feelings are authoritative. Your desires are the law. And everything else is organized around you. Expressive individualism is the idea that you constantly need to be emanating, communicating. Like the sun, you constantly need to be shining. You need to tell everybody who you are and how you're controlling your body and what message you're trying to send and what narrative you are performing. You need to constantly communicate your beliefs and your experiences, right? You know this. You may not know the terms, but you know it. We're an Instagram culture now. You know that. You can't just eat a sandwich now, right? Who eats a sandwich? you got to take a picture of yourself eating the sandwich, and then you got to communicate to the whole world how you experience the sandwich, right? can't just eat a sandwich. What are you, a barbarian? That's expressive individualism. And you know what? It is toxic to social formation. And, and this should be obvious if you think about it. How do you build meaningful relationships with other people if you are constantly the center of your experience and you are constantly communicating your experience to other people? You're saying, hey, look at me. No human being wants to be around somebody who's constantly saying, hey, look at me. Particularly if that other human being also is saying, hey, look at me. That's a clash of solar systems. And, and by the way, that's, that's why all relationships take place online now because that's a form of communication where I, I shine, you shine. Maybe I like your post. Maybe not. I'm busy making another post. And, but it's, it's really devastating to, uh, to, to in-person relationships. This is why young people are not getting married at anywhere near historic norms. How do you bind yourself to someone else who insists on being the center of the universe, especially when you want to be the center of the universe? This is why even those who do get married get divorced so rapidly. It's shocking the percentage of marriages that end in the first five years now. This is why millennials aren't having kids at anywhere near historic norms, because nothing shatters your illusions about your universe faster than having a kid. The kid comes out and is like, I'm the center, right? Worship me! Kid grabbing your phone, doing his own Instagram post, and you're like, what in the world is going on? And this is why, by the way, millennials have abandoned church in never before seen numbers. Because the church functions as a massive curb on expressive individualism. When you come to church, what's the first thing we tell you in the little pre-service announcement, right? Turn your phone off. You don't need to take a picture of yourself. This is me worshiping Jesus. No, it's not. This is you worshiping you. Leave the phone in the car, right? But I... Church requires us to completely dethrone ourselves. you got to put somebody else on the throne, right? Jesus is the center of the universe in here, amen? amen? You aren't even number two. That's hard for people to figure out. They're like, well, I suppose I could be number two to Jesus. You're not even number two. Remember uh, when I was a kid, the old ladies, well, I don't know it was just the old ladies, I just remember hearing it a lot from Mrs. <laughs> <laughs> from the old ladies in my church. But remember the old ladies used to say, um, it's Jesus, others, and then you. I feel like Mrs. Penner's voice is in my head saying that to me, uh, my Sunday school teacher as a kid. But, you know, that was usually what she said to me when I was elbowing other kids to get the hot dogs, uh, right? So it's Jesus, others, self. Remember that? Jesus, others, self. And we giggle at that. But it is actually kind of a profound summary of Christianity in a nutshell, isn't it? That is the universe in Christianity. Jesus. Than everyone else. And then right out here where Pluto is, or was, I guess we got rid of Pluto. <laughs> right, right out here is self. Now that's not self hatred, that's just self restraint. Remember, and, and it's core to Christianity. Remember, Jesus said, No, you know, he says, Take up your cross, and, and what was the next thing he said? Deny yourself. And if you can't do that, you're not my disciple. This is core Christianity. And it is a direct threat to expressive individualism. But that's exactly what the Jerusalem Council is requiring of all Gentile converts. Remember? Singular worship, sexual purity, social consideration. So, singular worship means worshiping Jesus. Not yourself, not anything else. Sexual purity means not doing whatever you feel like. Not allowing your desires to set your destiny. And then social consideration. Well, that means thinking about others more than you think about yourself. That means not starting every sentence in your inner monologue with, but I have every right to. Or, but why shouldn't I? That's the voice of expressive individualism. And so you've got to train that voice now to start every sentence with, what would be helpful for the people around me? What would be considerate for those who may be struggling with things that I am not struggling with? That is social consideration. And it has been a necessary element of Christian life and fellowship since the very beginning. (laughs) Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for all these plumb line stories. Lord, we have some theological controversies coming at us right now. We need to take this model seriously. We need to take its implicit commands seriously. And Lord, we have more threats to our social unity in the church than at any time, certainly in my lifetime. We need this reminder. And of course, Lord... We live in a culture that encourages us to give in to all of our desires and orientations, to treat them as authoritative, to say, this is how I feel, therefore that's who I am. Lord, we need to go back to an essentialist understanding of human nature that is rooted in the very Word of God. Just like we see here, experiences and testimony are great, but they must accord with the Scriptures. They must accord with design. Lord, we have a lot of work to do if we want to keep our light shining and if we want to keep our church united. So please help us, help us by the same Holy Spirit with which you helped the early church. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen.